In this edition of AML Conversations, AML Right Source Vice Chairman John Byrne sat down with Jonathan Lopez, a partner in the White Collar Corporate Investigations Group at Oric Harrington and Sutcliffe in Washington, D.C. The discussion centers around Jonathan's previous career with the Department of Justice, where he covered the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, personal liability cases, and money laundering issues. The conversation also covers his transition to the private sector and the perspective he now has from being a prosecutor to currently defending and advising white-collar clients. Sit back and enjoy AML Conversations. Jonathan, um, one of the things is being involved in AML as long as I've been, and, and you obviously to a degree have been involved for quite a while as well, one of the things that's always struck me is we talk about the uh, premise of financial crime, movement of funds for illegal purposes, and we don't spend as much time, I don't think, talking about corruption. Uh, maybe an AML person sitting here would say, oh, yes, of course we do. I actually don't think we do. I think sometimes we used to think of that as it's certainly a white-collar crime, corruption, but it's not, you know, if you're an AML professional, that's a fraud thing. And now we know that not so much are those areas getting merged, although in some cases they are, but I think better understanding how corruption fits in to what we we uh, we need to, to know and do as, as AML professionals is pretty important. So let me start with this. Um, your your view on corruption as a as a predicate's the wrong word as a premise for an AML professional to understand. Sure. So um, a couple of things on that, John. You know, corruption uh, and the enforcement of corruption in the U.S. specifically foreign corruption. So you know, you have domestic corruption, uh, obviously, and we've all long history of uh, in this country of prosecuting domestic corruption, and everyone know that's bad. Uh, foreign corruption has had a really interesting arc um, in that, much like the BSA was started in the 70s. Right. right. And, Mid-70s, and, right? I Mid-70s. Yeah. Uh, uh, actually, by the SEC and uh, Gulf Oil uh, started all of this. And, and it was well accepted that you could pay bribes um, overseas and you know no one thought anything of it. And, and, and the U.S. government decided, well, wait a second, we, that's not what we want uh, representative of the United States to be doing, and passed this law that came into effect in the late 70s and was largely unenforced. Um, uh, in some ways, similar to the Bank Secrecy Act, passed in the 70s, and from a large-scale enforcement effort, um, it, it was similar to the FCPA, where they both gave rise to significant enforcement uh, in the last 10 to 15 years. So uh, to a- answer your question about corruption, how does it fit in? You know, from a financial institution perspective, I think a lot in the AML BSA community are thinking of corruption of how do I spot it? Right, right. You know, how do I, what would its SAR look like? What they're not necessarily realizing, um, uh, that I've seen at least, uh, is focusing on their own operations and their own exposure to corruption abroad. Are they opening and working in international spaces? And what are they doing when they're getting those licenses to operate or the leases for their buildings? Are they interacting with government officials? And do they know from their own perspective what's happening when someone's interacting with a government official on the bank's behalf? Uh, And a lot of times I've seen the anti-corruption portfolio recently being merged into the Bank Secrecy Act portfolio 
and I wonder how much in, of those people that have both remits are not only thinking abroad uh, customer-wise, but thinking of the bank as its own customer and doing diligence on the banks and the bank's agents to make sure they're not uh, bribing people abroad. So it's, it's the same as sort of insider abuse versus abuse against the institution. Same, same theory, right? Same concept. So same it concept. would seem to me, based on what you said, that an anti-corruption policy is really governance. It's ethics as opposed to BSA. Now, there's nothing wrong with putting it in a part of the, of the uh, institution where there are skilled folks to look and determine it, but it sounds like, tell me if this is what you're saying. So by putting it in BSA, there's a, there's a danger that you're only going to focus on outside corruption toward the institution versus what you just said, which is absolutely true, and that is, especially with international institutions, are your guys paying bribes to get stuff you know, in, into uh, certain countries and that kind of thing that they may forget that that's a big part. Not forget's the wrong word, but, but they may not prioritize that. Yes, I, I think that's, that's right. They need to, to remember to prioritize that, and it's usually not their guys. Right. Most okay. corruption is not internal people, actual direct employees bribing anyone. Okay. It's usually agents. And so what kind of vetting are you doing on your agents? And what I find really interesting, having spent so much time in the anti-corruption space, as well as the AML space, is how similar they actually are. I mean, if you look at anti-corruption red flags, and you look at BSA red flags, anti-money laundering red flags, they're almost the same. You know, if it looks out of the ordinary, ask why. Understand who your partner is. Understand what their business is. Um, those answers need to make sense to you. When they can't answer it, ask why and follow up and see if those answers make sense. It's all kind of the same type of plan. The difference is that the BSA spells out you need to have an effective anti-money laundering program and training and testing and a compliance officer in the statute, whereas the FCPA doesn't spell that out, but it's expected of every company operating abroad uh, including financial institutions. So financial institutions really need to, they're really using the same skill sets in both areas. Um, and I think once they recognize that and figure out how to pull into those synergies, um, they'll be more effective at it as well. Let's talk a bit about your career. So uh, your time at the Justice Department was spent, I'm sure, doing different things, but sort of walk me through what you the things that you worked on while you were there. Yeah, so I, you know, I was um, fortunate enough to be at the right place uh, at the right time a number of times. So I started my career in, in Miami as an AUSA in Miami, uh, focusing on uh, drugs and guns and money laundering, um, and, and then moved up to D.C. and joined the main justice criminal fraud section where my diet of cases at the time was Enron, so accounting fraud, as well as foreign corruption uh, and FCPA cases. And, I, and I've tried uh, to verdict an, an FCPA case against an individual, which is, which is rare. Yeah. I mean, most FCPA sure. cases don't, don't actually get tried. Um, and that was at a time when the FCPA was just beginning to take off. So you know, when I think I was there at DOJ, there were maybe 10 people doing FCPA cases. Now there's you know, upwards of 50. Really? Yeah. Wow. So they've wow. really ramped up that, that enforcement effort. And, and from there, I moved um, uh, former director Shasky, when she was at DOJ, you know, talked with me about coming aboard uh, at, at then AFMELS, now to MLARS, right. to lead the bank integrity unit. Um, and be one of the inaugural deputy chiefs of that unit to really 
focus, you know, AFMEL's had a long history of bringing Bank Secrecy Act actions, but really to focus it and, and kind of uh, breathe life into the criminal aspects of the Bank Secrecy Act um, uh, in a dedicated fashion. And we brought the HSBC matter, which is subject to much debate. In fact, my mother still thinks um, that, uh, that we screwed that one up. Um, as your, well, your mother thinks you. Yeah, how, how does it feel when your mother says, you know, expresses her disappointment in you? At, is she an account uh, holder? No. <laughs> she is no. not. She's not an account holder. <laughs> okay. um, uh, and and uh, MoneyGram and some other good cases. Let me talk about MoneyGram, if that's okay. Sure. So obviously, one of the things that you've seen because we, we've met in the past couple of years when you've been uh, obviously actively engaged in. Um, number of conferences and programs and, and obviously an interest level both for your clients and, and for yourself in terms of the AML space. You know, because you were there, that the MoneyGram case sort of changed the dynamics regarding, quote, personal liability. And from some from obvious, some obvious ways, but also some not so obvious ways, the thing that's interesting, having done this as long as I have, I can recall when some of the money laundering laws were passed in the late 80s and early 90s, one of the um, one of the laws um, was what we call euphemistically called the death penalty bill. Mm-hmm. So the death penalty bill was, as you know, uh, if an institution was criminally convicted, the institution itself, then their charter could be revoked, and it was the basis of a lot of um, publicity, a lot of uh, press releases. The, the 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 secret that's no longer a secret is. Um, the financial sector, which I was part of, we were able to get some, I thought, pretty important factors that had to be considered before you would do that to an institution. Because closing an institution obviously impacts the community and, and there's all sorts of, that you would know better than I. But individual liability, which has always been a case with some of the banking statutes, barring people from banking, has always been something that the FDIC and the OCC, and I think the Fed as well, have, have done over time. But personal liability for a money laundering uh, uh, a deficiency, a, a money laundering, mis- um, um, I would say mistake makes it sound too simple, but you, you get the point. That's that's sort of um, a, the clarion call, if you will, to the compliance world. Hey, pay attention to this. I, I'm not going to ask you to talk about things that aren't on the public record, but what now that you're in the private sector, what do you take from the MoneyGram case in terms of if you were to sit down with me, I'm going to become an AML officer. I'm going to take this job at a mid-sized bank. Uh, it had previously had a consent order, so they, they had issues. What would you recommend to me to protect myself from potential issues with personal liability based on what you've learned from your MoneyGram experience? Yeah, that, that is a, a difficult question, which is why you've asked it. And it's the subject of a lot of different topics at all of our conferences. You know, what do you do to protect yourself in this environment? Um, and, you know, let me, let me take it from the DOJ side for a moment of what I think the standard should be. Um, and, and obviously there's a different civil standard. Right. Uh, it, but from a criminal perspective... Um, which the MoneyGram case uh, was not. It was ultimately a a civil case Mm -hmm. uh, on the individual side. You know, I think it's very difficult to bring those cases, and that's really why you haven't seen them. Right. And and, and the reason it's difficult is because the BSA 
is a programmatic statute. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, it's a programmatic statute. Unlike the FCPA mm-hmm. and corruption, even though I said that it's expected that they have the training and all that stuff, somebody paid a bribe. Right. Someone did that. That's an action. That's an, uh, yeah, it's not a program thing. The BSA being a programmatic statute, it's difficult and it should be difficult for not only DOJ but regulators to be able to say, you, sir, you, miss, are the problem of a larger program. So when you have a situation with a, with a, with a large company and, and a compliance department and someone in there trying to, you know, gets hired on the job for, let's say, four years, trying to understand and move the ship around, but hasn't done it yet, unless you've got some smoking gun that they're doing at profits or compliance or somehow knowingly, what are you actually saying by bringing an action? You didn't, you didn't move fast enough? You didn't correct it fast enough? I mean, that's not, that's not really fair. And if you have a diffuse structure, how do you pick which one? The compliance officer, the chief, the deputy chief compliance officer, these these decisions um, are ones that should not be taken lightly. I'm pleased to see the DOJ hasn't brought a criminal action because you know you're basically picking somebody and and charging them with either not moving fast enough or not asking enough questions, which really isn't the standard. It's an intense standard. So now let's take it to the civil side to get to your point. You know, what do you protect yourself against? I mean, you've got a lot. One of the issues you've got a lot of different regulators in the, and if you're, especially if you're, a, you know, a broker dealer or, or a bank in this space, um, and so you've got a lot of people looking over your shoulder as they know, as you know, and so you know if you're taking a new job as it, as a BSA officer, the best way to protect yourself, really, is and it sounds corny and it sounds cheesy, but. You know, what are your, what is that culture? And that culture is represented by what are the decision, what are the, what are the chain of command lines you have? What's your release valve if you don't like where it's going? Uh, what's your release valve to the extent you have negotiating power in your contract to, to leave if you think you need to? Um, and those are tough things. I mean, if you have a job and a family and a mortgage and you're saying I'm going to quit, you know, that's, that's big. So you right. want to understand, even if the institution's not there and they're under a consent order, that you're going to be given the power and the leeway, the resources, and the resources yeah. to do what you need to do. And you know, if you're not, I'm not saying don't take the job. I'm just saying know what you're getting into. Right. Ask the questions and make your choice based on your own personal, you know, needs at the time. You know, it used to be um, when, when this all started, the BSA officer was a add-on was complete add-on. If you were the BSA officer, chances are you were doing something else in compliance. They needed, because the program required it, a BSA officer. Over time, that person has gotten correctly more authority to, to be hopefully part of senior management, to be part of decision-making, but it's not completely that way still. So that would be the other point that I would ask myself. If I'm going to go to this institution that has, what's, as you said, what's their culture? Um, what authorities am I going to have, and do I have an exit plan? And you don't go in there necessarily with an exit plan, but you, you sort of got to think about that, right? I, I have a client right now who is putting together a uh, job description for a chief compliance officer. It's in the non-bank financial institution space. And they sent me the job description, and I said, okay, you know, that all looks good. Where is this person sitting? Mm-hmm. And they said, well, we're not thinking C-suite. We're thinking someplace else. And I pushed back hard and I said, you really should think C-suite because 
you know, there's the institutional aspects of making sure they have the authority and the resources and, and, and FinCEN wanting to see stuff like that. But also, there's the who, it, you know, you want someone to fill a very tough position in a risky spot. You need to attract good talent. And the type of talent you want is the type of talent that's going to demand a C-suite spot. So make it a C-suite right, spot. Right. Make it commensurate with what it is you want to um, attract. No, I think that makes sense. Let's go back to the Justice Department. And another, uh, um, I call it a guidance document. It's probably not proper. That's probably not accurate. The Yates Memo. Yes. Um, for those that are listening to this or don't know what that is, give us a quick elevator description of it and, and where you think that stands today. Because I think that's a pretty pretty important part of white-collar crime, not AML specifically, but certainly something that's come out in the past several years that we made sure that AML professionals took note of, but both what is it and where do you think it stands now? Okay, so first, the so what is it? The Yates memo is a memo that came out by Deputy then-Deputy Attorney General Sally Yates. And it's called the Yates Memo because she was the Deputy Attorney General. Other Deputy General, Attorney Generals before her have various memos named sure. with their last right. So that's the Yates Memo. And what it stands for is the idea that there is going to be a focus and a commitment by the Department of Justice on individual prosecutions. And it, it made a tweak to the U.S. Attorney's Manual in that it said in order for a company to get cooperation credit – which is important to a company because it gives the potential to lower their overall fine or settlement, um, they need to fully cooperate with the Department of Justice. And what does that mean? Well, that's not actually really clearly defined, but it, the memo takes a stab at it and says you have to tell us everything you know and no holds barred. Um, no one's protected. Board's not protected. Management's not protected. You need to be telling us all of your facts and circumstances. So a couple of things on the, on the Yates Memo. First, you know, while it made a huge ripple in the AML community and still continues to do so, it wasn't designed for the AML community. Right. It was right. designed for actually the FCPA community Interesting. Um, because too many big companies were having corporate settlements and no individuals. And back to what I said earlier, how is it you don't have an individual when someone paid a bribe? It, just, it doesn't make sense right. to a lot of people. Um, having said that, it's not limited to the FCPA. It, it goes across the Justice Criminal Division. So um, uh, uh, ha having said that piece, I think from a BSA officer perspective, the Yates memo is actually a helpful tool mm -hmm. um, because it says the board is not sacrosanct, because it says the executives you know, are, are, are not off limits. So to the extent you're doing your job and you're reporting up as you need to and making the demands that you need to be making to satisfy your role – you know, the DOJ is not looking to go after a compliance officer. So they go to you, Mr. Byrne, and ask you, okay, well, what are the issues in this bank? And, you know, what did you do? Well, I, I requested resources and for these reasons, and, you know, I was denied. They are now going to that next person. And the Yates memo says for that company to get cooperation or that financial institution, they have to say who that next person is. And they have to give all of that information over. Otherwise, no cooperation um, Credit will be granted. The one caveat I would say to BSA officers out there, and it's you know, there's been lots of debate about this too. You know, how much do you document? Do you write a memo on everything? Blah 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 blah. You know, I don't want to get into that debate. What I would say is more important is that you explain the why. I need more resources. Why? 
because I have lots of SARS that I need to look at or because of X or because of Y. If you don't say the Y and just say I need more resources without explaining how it impacts your job function, then that next person up the chain that the DOJ or regulator goes to says, well, they, need, they said they needed this. Yeah, everyone in my department is telling me I need more resources. That's, not, that's completely normal. So the why, you have to say the why. And whether it takes you 30 pages or two sentences, you know, that's, a, that's subject to a different debate. As long as the why it gets out there, that's what I, I think is important. You know, it's interesting um, talking about that. I once interviewed somebody, and we were talking about this from this perspective, saying when an enforcement action comes out, what value does it have if it wasn't against your institution? And so um, I've always believed that you take some of the themes from it, even if your institution is different, uh, different size, different re- whatever it is, and say thematically, here's sort of the its controls, its corporate culture, whatever. And what this person said to me, which I thought was really good advice. He said, don't forward that to senior management and say, FYI, here's this case, because no one's going to care. You really have to sort of slice and dice it and, and, and do maybe a, even a gap analysis. So a uh, long way of getting to the question to you. When you see an enforcement action and the clients that you have today, uh, how do you message that to them? So, so they've done some. You've done some AML work for some institutions, and um, even if you don't do this, I'm sure you've you, you've thought about it or you actually do it. Um, you know, this institution I've had for a couple of years. I'm going to send them this, but I'm also going to explain why I'm sending it to. Them. What would you focus on? Again, this would be an institution your client doesn't have any of these, or at least doesn't think it has any of these problems. But this enforcement action is so major that there's obviously something they should take a look at. Yeah, a- absolutely, and, and I do precisely that. I mean, like, it doesn't help just to forward the enforcement action without explaining how it applies to that institution or that type of institution um, and, and draw parallels. And, and so that's exactly what you want to do. You know, you want to say, look, you know, let's be thankful we don't have these problems. Um, and so, you know, acknowledging to the client you know, that they're doing some things right. Or if they do have some of these issues, you know, look at what's happening over there. We should be thinking about X, Y, Z. But the overarching message, you know, and and BSA and, uh, and, and Title 31 type stuff is the same as FCP in this regard too. Most of enforcement comes on the contours of these settlement actions. You know, most of what's expected. It's it's not as much about the guidance and the FAQs. It's how are these regulators putting it into practice. And so forwarding an enforcement action highlights, uh, in my mind, should highlight uh, along with that forward the trends, what's different, what's new that we hadn't seen before in other actions, or conversely, what's consistently a theme. Like this is another one where they're harping on information sharing and enterprise-wide approach. Here's another one like this. this they are hitting this theme Hard. So let's take a look at our policies and making sure, you know, a we're you know we're paying attention to enterprise-wide approach. And you know, is there more that we can be doing in this area? Is it worth a fresh look? You know, what themes are consistent? What themes are new? Going back to FCPA as a item to to consider. Um, I'm an AML professional, and I have all these things I have to be reading and staying up and uh, staying on top of, what would you recommend in terms of source 
material. Obviously, cases are one, but for FCPA, like if I'm fu- sort of brand new to the space, but I know that it's out there, and it's just another one of the things. Look, t- today's AML officer, unlike 20 years ago, needs to have a working knowledge of elder abuse, human trafficking, all, all sorts of things that weren't the traditional drug issues that you worked on uh, as a uh, when you first got got into you know prosecuting. Um, people and in, in, in institutions, it's now just so much part of that. So FCPA, I can just see some of our folks listening going, oh, I, don't, I don't have time to do that. I mean, it, it's, it's something that's been around. Uh, I'm, I'm going to just take a chance that it's not going to hit me, which would be silly. Uh, but source material, and how would I stay on top of that? So a couple of things on that. So one, from a, so as we started with a financial institution, there's two focuses on FCPA anti-corruption customer account type diligence and your own internal diligence. So let's focus on customer account type diligence. As a baseline, financial institutions actually detecting corruption, setting aside kleptocracy and PEPs. Right, right. Which is, you know, that's easy enough to figure out. Yep. Almost impossible. Pretty tough. (laughs) Yeah. And that's what you haven't seen. You've seen rumors of investigations of financial institutions in association with FIFA or Manafort um, and other cases, uh, but you haven't seen it yet, the actual case being brought. And, and a reason for that is, take FIFA, for example. You're talking about a situation of an international organization who, by its definition of you know putting on the World Cup in various places and other events, are spending money with lots of different uh, uh, organizations and outfits all over the world that you would never really recognize. That is their business model. So how are you going to tr- detect right, corruption right, in right. that, right? So part of, I think, my message is um, you know, wrapping your head around how to find corruption is going to be a very difficult task. Having said that, what can you do to stay ahead of the curve instead of reading every single FCPA case on top of every single AML thing? I think one of the biggest things to be thinking about is uh, looking at Transparency International. Um, Transparency International publishes an index of corruption linked to geography. You're going to see when you look at that, it's going to overlay pretty heavily with geographic areas known for money laundering. Having said that, there'll be other ones on there that may not have made it as high on a money laundering list. It, to the extent you have accounts or transactions into those high-risk corruption jurisdictions, that's what you want to be paying attention to. A second resource that I would be thinking about is, uh, it's not quite the IEC manual, (laughs) thankfully, or any of the other mountains of guidance. There is an FCPA guidance manual put out by the Department of Justice. I would pay attention to that uh, manual. It's one manual. It's not you know, extraordinarily thick, right. and it outlines DOJ's expectations. Um, there's also any number of blogs out there that you could right. log on to, you know, the FCPA professor, so on and so forth. Um, so I, but, you know, the biggest low-hanging fruit is paying attention to Transparency International and getting a copy of DOJ's FCPA guide. All right, a couple of last questions for you. One is, now that you're in the private sector, been there for a couple of years, Working with clients enmeshed in, in, in AML-related issues, what's been your what surprised you the most? Obviously, you know. Look, I know a lot of folks that were prosecutors and are now are defending institutions, or at least giving them advice and counsel. Defending is not always the proper term. 
So there's a difference there. So that that I get. But from your from where you sat before to where you sit now, what's what's the thing that surprised you the most? Yeah, I, you know, it, it's hard to say. Um, I think from you know working with the Department of Justice on this side of the fence, uh, you see how um, you see to what extent. Uh, unfortunately, even myself, when I was with the Department of Justice, operate in your own world and your own, um, you know, view of the facts that begin to settle early on in a case, where you, by definition, don't have all the facts of the case, and how difficult it is even to get reasonable prosecutors off their preconceived notion of the facts. That I would say is is a you know one of the things that is most surprising to me. Not really surprising because you know you understand where it comes from, um, but from my own self-realization, you know, if I went back now as a prosecutor again, um, I may be you know accused of not being as aggressive as I should be, right. but I would be a much better prosecutor and the type of prosecutor people would want folks to be, right? You know, not having these preconceived notions. And and no prosecutor out there wants to say that they, they have them and that they're not being fair and they're not following the evidence. But um, at the end of the day, it's a very difficult task to get someone off a view that they've started down on. Um, that's human nature. So so that, that part's been, been, been a bit difficult. But, you know, from the Yates memo to other things, career prosecutors have been, you know, they joined that office. Some do it, you know, to hopefully flip it into a private practice experience or some other thing. But 90% of them do it because they believe in public service. Mm-hmm. You know, same with the folks at Treasury, same with the folks at FDIC and every place else. They're there because they're career people believing in public service and they're trying to do it right. You know, it's interesting. I, I, I think I could say this uh, based on the years I've been doing this. It is comforting to know that uh, where we're at right now, we're at the West Coast AML Forum, which is a little unique program. It's not, it's not the ACAMS, it's not ABA. It's um, w- with with no press and um, uh, a limited amount of attendees. It's supposed to be, and generally is, law enforcement and bankers getting together and trying to share information, case studies, typologies, and regulators are here too. And there's a genuine interest in trying to work together. So I think. Um, I think many bankers respect the heck out of those in government, and but they'll disagree. They'll you know argue or whatever. So I think that part of it um, is 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 important. So I do I do think that's the case. I think sometimes what happens though is you're right. You're kind of staying in your lane. So not not so much law enforcement or even prosecutors, but the regulators. You know they have a job to do, and it's not to make nice. It's to find things, frankly, they will say it's to make sure your institution's safe and sound. Well, no, it's to find things, and and you can always find things. So the question is, is that going to be a deal breaker in terms of having a, a well-run institution not affected by? I'm not even talking about consent orders, but just you know uh, regulatory criticism. So for me, the fact that they come to these programs and listen and present is 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 a good thing. So I I think that's important. We got to keep doing that. You know, and I think if you do it out of, out of the outside the spotlight of, it's not a criticism of the press at all. But if they feel comfortable in talking and arguing, that's going to be better, right? So I mean, I think uh, you, you're not going to have that many opportunities, but the extent that you can, I think that's that's important. So I, I assume that you know you've you've seen 
some of that as well. And again, you've seen some of your former colleagues that will come to these events, and that's that's a good thing. Uh, it, it's a phenomenal thing. Look, as a defense counsel, my job is to overcome those preconceived notions. That's what I do. Um, and it is difficult, uh, but but that's you know I, I that's that that's the task I undertake, and I like to think I'm I'm good at it. Having said that, one of the reasons why it's difficult is because you know people are set in their positions at these conferences on a particular specific case, and, and they think I come in with every case trying to say, well, you got the wrong guy, exactly. ah, you got the wrong guy. Right, I mean, right. You can only do it so many times. Where they're like, Jonathan, how do you all, how do you always get the ones that are the wrong guy? Right. What's nice about these conferences is that there is no specific fit case where someone is saying to me or an AML officer or someone in the audience asking questions, uh, well, of course, you know, you're trying to advocate for that because, you know, you're trying to convince me that I'm wrong and someone on track. It's actually an intellectual discussion right. about the concepts. Right. And that provides for a very free flow of information. So you can have a conference where you go up to a regulator and say, look, I'm seeing a real disconnect between what I'm hearing from leadership about this not being a gotcha game and what I'm seeing at the examiner level exactly. of this being a zero tolerance, maybe it's not gotcha, but it's zero tolerance. Yep. Yep. And why is that disconnect happening? You know, that is a, a, a question that you can ask without giving your name, you know, if you want to, um, and let them know about this disconnect without them feeling defensive about it because they've already gone down some path in a very specific matter that you're talking about. You, you know, it's interesting. I won't name the agency, but one of the agencies that I had the uh, uh, pleasure of moderating a, in a recent panel said in, public, said in a public forum, but said that they are working on improving specialization of examiners. And, and I think what that jargon meant is they recognize, based on what you just said, that complaints have come in, and when you get a few, there's got to be some smoke. There's, there's some smoke there. There's probably a little fire. Um, perhaps they're not as all well trained as they should be. Not that they don't do training, and not that the training's not robust, but eh, they're not getting it. So I think the fact that that's happening, they will never say it's in reaction to the complaints, but I think to some degree it is, um, and we'll see. The last thing I'll get you out on this um, you know, as we sit here in early May in 2018, um, there has been a number, a number of attacks on your former agency, the Department of Justice, on all sorts of reasons and all sorts of issues. And, um, you know, I, I'm not going to ask you about the specifics because we don't, we don't know the specifics. We could just know what we read and all that kind of stuff. But the, but the premise that there can be so many attacking an institution like the Department of Justice. And let's let's face it, the banking industry has complained about the Justice Department based on some cases. So has the oil industry. So has consumer groups. But it's never been this sort of shrill, negative, constant, um, uh, not even suggestion, outright statements of what's going on and, and an agency that we so need to work as well as I believe it does, even if it's not perfect. Just that. How do you feel as a former DOJ lawyer just to read in the paper the attacks on individuals, but also on, let's be fair, some of the attacks are on the Justice Department in general. That No one says, well, I only mean so-and-so. 
you see a lot that it's just broadly cast. Having spent the early part of your career in a place that you obviously think a lot of, and so do we in the AML community, how, how, what, what are you thinking when you, when you see that? I, I think it's really tough. Um, it's really tough on, on me, and it's really tough on you know, the, everyone who was a um, you know, former prosecutor, former FBI agent, um, as well as, of course, all the current prosecutors, FBI agents, and other, you know, DHS uh, and everything else. Um, because, as I said earlier, these people go into the jobs because they believe in public service. Um, and especially when you have, you know, setting aside politics, you know, look at the leadership of DOJ today. Um, you know, whether you like Rod Rosenstein or not, the guy didn't get plucked into there from out of nowhere. He's been a right. lifelong career prosecutor right. long before he ever knew he was going to be a DAC. Now, do I agree with every decision he made? Of course not. I don't. Right. Um, but these are career people trying to do their job. And the allegations that are coming out is that it's politicized, that the, that you know someone's favoring one party or another. Why are you investigating this and you're not investigating that? And, you know, having been a career prosecutor, it, it, both in the field at Maine, at, in Miami and at Maine Justice, where I worked other places, in a lot of different sections at Maine Justice, I can tell you that uh, it's almost similar to the AML BSA officer discussion we were having earlier. You know, what do you do to protect yourself when do you quit? Ninety-five, if not higher, percent of career prosecutors I know that if they if they were told to look at something that was politically motivated, they would absolutely refuse to do that. Um, and the idea that it's being painted with this big broad brush that is prevalent everywhere is really you know upsetting right. um, because these people are out there, you know, trying to make us all safer and keep the rule of law. And right now I see that being distorted in a number of ways. The only way to overcome this is with facts, communication, and hope, and hope, and hope that people will actually read and come to conclusions based on knowledge they attain versus uh, information they're given that may be uh, at best suspect. So, Jonathan, thanks um, so much for sitting down with me. Uh, you've been a great addition to the AML field. Appreciate your thoughts on all this. and. Um, all I can say is, uh, you know, going forward, I think it's important for those that are listening to understand there's so many different ways you can participate in the AML community, uh, either you know, legally or if you're in the accounting space, advisory service, and uh, obviously you've been able to do a great deal of that. So we appreciate what you're doing and I hope you stay involved many, many, many more years. Thank you, John, and thank you for the opportunity. I think what I enjoy so much about doing these interviews is you get a chance to sit down with people that have passion for not just AML, but for what, what they do, working with the public and private sector, and the mission, the mission of getting information where it should be, in the hands of law enforcement, so we can have those investigations, eventually those prosecutions. And people on all sides uh, of the community believe in that. Jonathan obviously had a very important career at the Justice Department. I think having him in the private sector is pretty important to the community. I was particularly um, interested in his views on the Yates memo, his views regarding personal liability, you know, obviously being so, somewhat on the other side now, but understanding the, the importance of uh, the programs and policies uh, that have to be implemented, but also being sort of practical regarding 
are you going to make somebody liable if there's a mistake that uh, is caused in large part because of lack of support? So I thought that was pretty interesting as well. And then also, the reason I wanted to sit down with him, and we tried to do this interview for a long time, is his views on the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, corruption issues in general. Because I think sometimes we in the community forget um, that we need to understand that part of fraud, if you will. Uh, it's not just about drug trafficking and terrorism, as we know. It's about many other things. Once again, Jonathan Lopez is a partner at Oric Harrington and Sutcliffe out of Washington, D.C., Check out the information on their firm online. And this is John Byrne for AML Conversation. We will see you next time. A lot going on in 2018, and AML Right Source is right there in the thick of things. You should understand that we are hiring, so go to our website for more information. Also, we have blogs, white papers, and other information that is essential to keep AML professionals up to date on current news. In future episodes of AML Conversations, we plan to talk to government and private sector experts in the AML, financial crimes, and terrorist financing space. We are interested in hearing from you, so please send any of your thoughts, comments, or individuals you would like to hear us talk to to info at AMLRightSource.com. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next time.